You're listening to Regen, formerly known as the Regenerate Podcast, a ministry of River City Church in Lewiston, Idaho. For more information about Regen, visit rivercitychurch.us. The following sermon was originally preached during the spring of 2018. We hope you enjoy this special archival content from Regen. Mission is uh, our mission is to change the world for Jesus one person at a time. So, and one of the ways that we believe that we can do that is actually by allowing God to change us through His Word. Um, we had a couple weeks ago um, there was a massive. I just wanted to point this out. A couple weeks ago there was a, a large car wreck that a number of people were involved in, including our sister Aaliyah. And I just want to say. Um, this is Aaliyah right here, and she's here tonight, and she is not like, in, she's not hospitalized. She's not, uh, um, she's not like, what's up? And so is Grace, both of whom were involved in the incident, so we can give God a praise for bringing them safely home, for bringing them here. God is good all the time. He is able to save, He is mighty to save, and uh, we just spent some time that night just crying out to God and praying together. For some people, they were like, oh, this is weird, and... Uh, to which I say, well, I guess talking to somebody who's invisible does seem a little weird unless you know him. Come on. So anyway, um, <laughs> so tonight we're going to continue in our uh, series which is called Christianese. Somebody say Christianese for me. Christianese. All right, so um, I know that we're not like a um, uh, huge group tonight. That's all right, but I'm going to need a lot of talk back, okay? So when it went in and regenerates somebody preaches something good, you say, Amen. you guys got to speak back to me. I need help every week, you guys. You guys, so I really, I really need this. Um, so I want you guys to turn to the book of Ephesians for me. Turn to the book of Ephesians. In this series, we're kind of jumping around and we're doing something a little bit different than we have done in the past. In the past, we've studied through entire um, books of the Bible. Right now, what we're trying to examine is what Christians say. What the heck did you just say, right? Christians are say weird stuff, and we don't even understand half the things that we say. And some of you aren't even Christians, maybe, but you're here tonight because you're like, I don't even know what it is about this, but but I just, I want to know why it is that religious or spiritual people say things like this. And so tonight we're going to be talking about the Trinity. The Trinity. What is the Trinity? The Holy Triumvirate. The, the three-in-one, the Godhead. What is the Trinity? Um, I know Trinity was a character on the Matrix, right? No. Um, well, first of all, uh, I, I just want to tell you guys, I did many, many hours of searching uh, throughout Scripture, and I found something out. The tri- word Trinity doesn't appear in the Bible. Ever. So, we can go home. No. Um, the, so, ne- never mentioned in Scripture, ever. It was actually first affirmed by the church. It was something that was spoken up by the early church, uh, by the early church, and kind of became officially affirmed by the church at a big meeting called the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D. Now, how many guys have had arguments with your siblings before? All right. If you don't, if you are not raising your hand, then either you don't have siblings or you are a liar. Um, so. <laughs> So, uh, and that was what the whole exercise was before all this. So there you go. You just got, you just got owned. Okay. You just got punked. Anybody remember that show? Uh, Ashton Kutcher. Yeah. Good times. Anyway, uh, my high school years. So, um, (laughs) so anyway, with, uh, so when I, when I was younger, I used to argue with my brother, Jed. Why? Because he was my younger brother. He was two and a half years younger than me. I was always right. And he was always wrong. So I had to prove that to him 
many times over. And uh, the way that we would argue, Jed and I, is through detail. Like we would, it would Jed was like always about the detail. Where he, or I'd be like, dude, you said that I could eat that food that you had in the fridge. He'd say, no, I said that you couldn't not not eat that. And I'd be like, no, dude, that's that's, that's like a triple negative. That doesn't make any sense. And he would say, I didn't even say that. I said, yeah, you couldn't. Well, I didn't hear you. Well, you should have listened. Well, it's not my fault. You know, like so, like. We would get in arguments about like the minutia, like how things were said and how they were done exactly. Um, now we didn't redo that for good reason. Uh, but back in the day, the church used to de- people, Christian leaders used to debate things. And sometimes the reason that they debate these things is not just because they're trying to be right, quote unquote, but rather because they were trying to protect the church from something, or because they were trying to uh, inform the church about something. How do you mean you know the church needs to be informed? Sometimes, sometimes as Christians, we just got to be informed about things because we yeah. don't know. But in those, so in about 325 AD, uh, by this time the Edict of Milan has passed, and the Edict of Milan was a law passed by um, Constantine, the um, emperor of Rome, and he officially legalized Christianity. So in 325, um, he gathered all these Christian leaders from around the Roman Empire and said, "Hey, you know what? I know that you guys are writing letters to each other and trying to figure out doctrinal disputes, and you're trying to figure out like why do we believe what we believe." See, the thing is, like what we believe has to be informed by what we read. You know what I'm saying? When we read, uh, what we read out of Scripture ought to inform what we believe as Christians. And a lot of times we tend to believe things simply because it was passed down to us. Right? Somebody told us in Sunday school with a cute little flannel graph and a little sheep made of like, you know, cotton balls and stuff. And then that's what we believe about Jesus being a good shepherd. Even though, and then we re- grow up realizing, wait, Jesus was never actually a shepherd. He's called the good shepherd, but he spent his whole life being a carpenter. Why did I think he was a shepherd? Because I always see pictures of Jesus with a shepherd's staff. What is up with that? Right? We, we, we start to accept things and believe things about God, and that actually affects the way that we live. And so we ought to believe the right things. How do we do that? So returning back to history, they have the Council of Nicaea in 3825 AD, and they came up with what was called the Nicene Creed. And this is one of the first big doctrinal statements about God. Creeds were simple affirmations of the Christian faith um, at a time when Bibles are hard to come by. Okay? So you couldn't just like pick up a Bible. There, there, there wasn't no Christian bookstores or anything. Okay? Christianity had been legal for like four years. Okay? So they were like, um, you can't just do that. So how do we believe what we believe? Well, we need to come up with some simple way to memorize it. So that's why they came up with creeds, and they were based on Scripture. And speaking of Scripture, I want you, you guys are, is everybody there in Ephesians 4? Okay. If you're not, then uh, get your phone out and get there or whatever. Get your Bible out. And then uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read this and we're going to unpack it. Are you guys ready to have a little bit of teaching and some preaching tonight? Is that okay? Is that okay? All right. So let's, let's do that. I'm going to give you a little bit of background, then we're going to dive right in. So this is the book of Ephesians. It was written by the Apostle Paul, former Christian hater turned Jesus follower. It was written about A.D. 62. Okay, so give or take, it's about 30 years after Jesus had died and ascended into heaven. Um, uh, rose again and then ascended into heaven. And Paul is in prison and he writes to the Ephesian church... Uh, he writes to the church in a city called Ephesus, which was a major city at the time on the coast of what is now Turkey. Turn to somebody and say Turkey. Turn to somebody else and say Thanksgiving. It's coming up. No, not quite actually. Um, so he, was, he wrote to this church um, because this is the thing. Ephesus was a big city, and so there was people from all over the empire who would bring their goods in. It was a big city, a center of commerce. It was a major economic hub. And so people would come from all over the empire to be there, which means one, uh, one thing right off the bat, social and economic diversity. 
right? There's people from all over, there's people speaking different languages, there's people with different religions, all coming to the same place. Now we know, just reading from Acts, you can read about how the early leaders of the church would go somewhere and there'd be a synagogue there. Synagogue. Anybody know what a synagogue is? Okay, we're going to have to do a little education. Okay, that's right. A synagogue was a Jewish house of worship. What this means is that the people of God, the, the Israelites, have been scattered all over the world, and suddenly Jesus comes. And then everything changes, and the people of God are no longer just people who are of Jewish descent, but rather people who are grafted into the family of God by faith in Jesus Christ. So now you have this huge family, and so you have people who are, uh, you have many Christians who have a Jewish background. They have this understanding of one God, right? In Deuteronomy, there's this uh, famous verse called the Shema that the people of Israel memorized, and it says that the Lord our God is one, okay? Other cultures, they believe in multiple gods. We believe in one God. His name is Yahweh. We serve Him alone, okay? That was the basis of their faith, and they came to faith in Christ believing that He was the Messiah or the chosen one brought by God to deliver people from their sins. So that's what they believed about Jesus. The problem is you also have Gentiles. Turn to somebody and say Gentile. Gentiles. It's a word that we don't use a whole lot nowadays. It's not super popular. It means a non-Jewish person. And so many non-Jewish people also came to faith in Christ. And they believed that he was the son of God. And they believed that he rose from the dead. And they believed that he was the only one that they could serve. So there's people coming to faith in Jesus who are Jewish and non-Jewish. And so what Paul appeals for in the book of Ephesians is unity. Because what's the problem in Ephesus? Racial division and ethnic division and religious division even. There's a lot of division. Turn to somebody and say division. How many of you guys know that it's not un- much unlike the culture that we live in now? We live in a culture of outrage. We live in a culture of division. We live in a culture where it is easy to define yourself by what you believe in, not, or, or actually by what you don't believe in rather than what you believe in. It is really easy to get upset with people over social media. It is really easy to go separate ways from somebody because of something that was said. Am I, am I touching on anything here? This is the thing. This is the, the culture back then is not much different than it is now. But let me tell you something. He's addressing the issue today of unity because it's still an issue today. And it's, why is it still relevant? Because it's an issue today. Because he's preaching about the power of true unity, which is bought by blood. Because true unity, as Paul begins to preach about it, is, about, is rooted in a theological understanding. Can I tell you something? Theology is the root of practice. Theology is the root of practice. You can write that down. Because if you are a Christian today, what you believe deeply impacts how you live. And how you see other people. And what you think about. See, Paul, in his letters, he always gives a theological justification for his apostolic commands. A lot of times we think of God as this person who tells you what to do because he's just this big meanie who just, his only justification for telling you that is because I'm God and I told you so. Like, That's his only justification for it. No. In Scripture, you'll see that God often will give a theological justification for a command. He'll say, I want you to be holy as I am holy. I want you to do this because this is the way I am. I want you to do this because you're made in my image and I want you to flourish. I want you to have the life that I've always planned for you. And I want you to walk in this way so that way your image can conform to the image that I originally created for you. So God does that through Paul. And in Ephesians 4, let's read this, and then I'm going to unpack it. Ephesians 4, 4-6 through 6 says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all 
and through all and in all. Let's pray. This is God's Word. Lord Jesus, we give you this time. I ask that you would open our eyes and open our ears to see the theological foundation of unity that is present in you. That you yourself are united, and so we ought to be united, God. And I pray that we have a deeper understanding of the Trinity as it should be understood. Jesus, let my words be your words tonight. God, I I just humble myself under your hand right now. And God, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Oh God, my rock, my redeemer, in whom I trust. And everybody said, Amen. Amen and Amen. So here's the thing. We believe in this God who is like three in one, right? And we can see it in the language that Paul uses right here. He mentions three different Three different words, all of which refer to God. One is Spirit, one is Lord, and the other is Father. These three words all refer to a part of God's nature. Now, how do we understand the Trinity? Well, this one's kind of hard to do. Like, I'm not going to be able to, and let me just be clear. I'm not going to solve the deepest issues of, like, doctrinal theology. I, I, I barely know anything about this kind of stuff. But let me just give you what I know. Okay, so we believe in this idea of one God, Right? Everybody see that? God. So this is kind of an illustration that the church has used for a long time. But at the same time, we see these different... uh, We we see that God is also three persons at the same time. There's God the Father. Right? And then we've got God the Son. Not the sand. Not the sand. Not the sand. And then uh, God the Holy Spirit. Three different persons all of whom are God. So there's God, who is all, there's the Father, who is God, the Spirit, who is God, and the Son, who is God. However, the Spirit is not the Son, neither is the Son the Father, and the Father is not the Spirit. Is your mind blown yet? <laughs> okay, because, yeah, it's like a little atomic bomb just goes off. Wait, how does that, how does that even work? The best way I can think of it is understanding space, right? We live in three dimensions. Amen? Okay. Somebody's <laughs> like, whoa, I'm excited about that. Amen. I live in three dimensions. 3D. All right, so when you see, so basically what do we have? We have, we measure things by width. We measure things by height and by depth or length. Yeah. So these three dimensions are what define space. Each of them is an individual measurement in and of themselves. But apart from all three, it's not actually space. Hello. So that's that's the easiest way that I can think of to demonstrate the Trinity. Everybody's like, wow, thank you for that revelation, Sam. You changed my life. How does this impact me? Well, let's talk about it. So first of all, what does Paul mention first in the, among the three persons of what we call the Godhead? First, the Holy Spirit. So there's, there's he says the Spirit. The, I inserted holy there. Paul illustrates a relationship. What's incredible, he says, is there's one body and one spirit. Why does he say this? Because he's talking to a church, and he's using the illustration of a body to describe what the church is like. Many parts working with one purpose. Read 1 Corinthians 12. So he says the church is like a body, and the spirit is, he says there's one body and one spirit, just as there, you have one hope that belongs to your call. What is he talking about? What is Paul even getting, in, at, getting at here? What he's referring to when you look at it, he says that a body and a spirit have a relationship with one another. There's a material, and it's like a material and immaterial part of a person. When we look at Genesis 2, 
and Paul would have been well versed with Genesis 2, we see the creation of mankind. And God, when He creates man, makes him out of the dust of the earth. And so there's this, there's this body, there's like this lump of, I don't know what it was, like earth, protoplasm, something or other. Like God makes this, this lump and goes, yes, that's a man, but something's missing. And so then it says he breathed life into him. It says it gave him the breath, or in Hebrew, ruach, of life. It's a very breathy word. So he said, so there's this, there's this breath of life that enters into him. And suddenly it says a man became a living creature. And in the same way that, that a man is not a living creature apart from the supernatural breath of God. See, we could 3D print a person today, probably, within the next few, within the next few years. But even if we 3D printed somebody, we could not give them life because it's the supernatural gift of God. Right? You tracking with me? So what this means is Paul's referring to the church as a body. Ergo, the church, the body, apart from the Spirit, is dead. The Holy Spirit is the one who breathes life and vitality and power into what the church does. If the Holy Spirit is not present, then the church itself is just a group of people. Just a, just a club that we're a part of. But if the Holy Spirit is involved, suddenly we have dunamis power from on high to accomplish what Jesus wants us to accomplish, which is to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. So you do have the power to actually... See, there's so many problems in the world right now. We look at like issues like just yesterday there's this horrible shooting. And there's all this debate, right? There's this, all this debate about... It's, you know, we can't talk about gun control. No, no, we need to talk about mental health. We need to talk about all these things. And then ultimately, the only, you know, the only person who has the ability to change people's hearts and to give life to a dying world is life itself, the very breath of God. And how is that life supposed to get to the world except through the church, through His body? Yes, God involves Himself personally in history. Yes, God sends angels to do His will. But most of the time, it is human beings who are doing God's will in the earth by His power. So, why is, this, why is, why is Paul talking about this? Because the Holy Spirit binds us together. The Holy Spirit is the glue that keeps us together as the family and body of God. It's a powerful, powerful thing. What's interesting about this whole passage too is there's no verbs in it. Like in the Greek, there's, there's no verbs. It just says one body, one spirit, one Lord. He doesn't even say it, there is. He just says one, 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 one. Why? Because he's just, he's like assuming this, right? It emphasizes just that this is, this is the truth. I don't even need to say what it is. It's just, I'm just going to say it and you know, what, you know what I'm talking about. One spirit, mm-hmm. Yeah, one, one Lord, mm-hmm. one faith, yeah, amen. One baptism, yeah, one God, a Father of all who is over all and through. Mm, preach it, Paul. He's just bringing the truth. He doesn't even need to have any, have any verbs to tie it all together. What's crazy is he compares it to a future hope. He says, just as you are called to one hope that belongs to your call. What is the hope? The hope is Jesus Christ. The hope is life with Him forever. That is the hope that Paul is referring to. And he's saying that this is as sure as the hope that you have in Him. A hope which is produced by the calling that God put on your life. God is calling you to something. And just as sure as those who are called have an eternal hope in God that does not die, so the Holy Spirit binds us together, empowers us, and moves us forward into the will of God. The Holy Spirit is power, people. is the very breath of God. So that is one person of God. Secondly, we have this, the Lord, Jesus. Or as my friend Dr. Hugh Garcia would put it, the Lord Jesus. 
he is from Brazil, and so he talks like that sometimes. That there, the Lord. So, um, if you know him, you can chuckle about it. If you don't, just go, oh. <laughs> so, this is really interesting. So, he just says there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. What's interesting, though, is that it's part of a list in verse 5. And he makes a powerful assumption here. He says there's, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One faith being faith in Jesus Christ. One baptism being a symbol of your outward self dying and your inner man that is recreated by God becoming alive. Right? So he's saying these are normal things. And he's just kind of, a, I like how it just kind of puts it in a list like, you assume, like he assumes you know. I have a buddy named Mike who is the best at this. Anybody have a friend who, like, when he talks to you or when she talks to you, she, like, Mike, would always, Mike always just comes up to me, you know, you know what I'm talking about. Like, he'll be talking, he was, like, way into, like, metal music, right? Or, like, not metal, but uh, hardcore. And, like, uh, emo bands from, like, the late 90s and early aughts. And he'd come up to me and talk to me as if I knew what he was talking about. He'd be like, you know, Elliot, Penfold, Emery, Dashboard Confessional, you know. And I'm like, he's like, the great emo bands, you know. And I'm like, Right. <laughs> Those ones. <laughs> I had no idea what he's talking about. But, you know, but he has this way of just kind of going, you know, you know what I'm talking about? And you're like, yeah. Any, anybody ever had a conversation like that where you just kind of nod and go, absolutely, I know what you're talking about, right? So Paul's kind of operating that way. He's like, you know what I'm talking about? One Lord, one faith, one baptism. You know. You know what I'm saying? You know. Because you're a church. You put your faith in Jesus. You know who you are, right? You, when I say one Lord, who am I talking about? Sunday school answer. Yes, Paul is making a powerful assumption, though, that the Lord is Jesus. The word there is kurios. It means master or Lord, and he's talking about the Lord Jesus. When he says one, he uses a masculine adjective just to emphasize for us the fact that this is a man, specifically the God-man who he's talking about. What's crazy, though, is that it's re he's reinforcing the manhood of the Lord Jesus, and what's crazy is that the list continues, just it but it emphasizes something. Both the necessity and assumption of our faith in Christ and in his Godhood. See, Jesus isn't even the biggest part of this list. It's just kind of thrown in there because he's like, yeah, you guys know who Jesus is. Why? Because it is assumed that Jesus has already changed your life. So when you read the list and you say the Lord, you know automatically he's talking about Jesus because Jesus has changed your life. You know him. He is the Lord. And you, that's just an automatic assumption for you. When somebody says the word Lord, you go, Jesus. You don't say Caesar. You don't say my boyfriend or girlfriend. You don't say my mom or my dad. You don't say the president. You don't say whatever. You say when somebody says Lord, you think Jesus. That's the first thing that comes to mind. That's what happens when Jesus transforms your life. The Son of God is the Lord. That's what Paul calls him. And what did he do? Well, it says in John 20, 31, that the scriptures were written so that we might believe that he, that is Jesus, is the Christ. And that by believing in him, you might have life in his name. The assumption that Paul is making here is that you know and believe and trust in the Lord Jesus, who himself came down in the flesh to live a perfect life, so that he could be the perfect human sacrifice and substitute for your sins on a cross. So that he could die, and then three days later, by the same breath that kept brought Adam from being just a pile of dirt to being a man, the same breath that binds us together as the family of God, by that same breath he might be raised up again, so that we could know for sure that he is the Lord, and he's seated at the right hand of God. That is Jesus. The lover of your soul, the good shepherd, the God-man, 100% God, 100% man who came to earth to free us from our sins. 
and he is currently awaiting his return to earth. So, the Lord Jesus. The emphasis here is on, on unity is really important, though. I think this is actually noteworthy. So Paul's, writing, so Paul's writing to this church in Ephesus, and he's talking about how there's one of everything, right? There's one Lord, there's one faith, there's one baptism, one God and Father of all. And so why, is he, why this emphasis on oneness? Why, why does he have to do this? Because there's two kinds, of, like I said, there's two kinds of believers here in Ephesus. There's Jewish believers, and there's non-Jewish believers. And so this emphasis on unity is designed for, one, for two things. Number one, to help the Jewish believers affirm God's three persons... Right? But then at the same time, you have all these Gentiles coming into Ephesus. Now, these Gentiles are coming from places where they worship multiple gods. I know that we don't know what this is like. Um, you know, we don't have multiple devices that we spend hours in front of. Um, we don't have... Right? Uh, we don't have... <laughs> We don't have things that ever take the place of God. We don't have multiple things in our life. We don't use words like, I'm so busy that I can't fill in the blank. We don't do that. We don't have a polytheistic culture, right? But these Gentiles are showing up, and they worship more than one God. They worship the rain gods so that they can make it rain, right? They worship, and they worship the, the fertility gods so that the crops come up. They worship the God of sex so that they have a great love life or something like that. I don't even know. And, then they're, and so they, they're worshiping these multiple gods. And so Paul writes, one, for the Jewish believers who believe in one God to recognize that actually God has three persons. Did you know that? This is your lesson for today, Jewish believers. And then for the, for the pagan believers, he's saying, no, 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 God is one. You need to recognize this. One faith, one baptism. Isn't this crazy? So he's, he's brilliant, absolutely brilliant, because he's taking the Jewish idea of the oneness of God and going, there's three persons, and then he's taking the, the, Gent the Gentile idea of, oh yeah, there's billions of gods, so nope, there's only one God. So just incepted you, you know? And like, just absolutely brilliant. And so, he so this is a very carefully designed text. To affirm for us that the Lord Jesus is for everyone, and He is the Lord, but He's also distinct from the Spirit, right? And He's also distinct from the third person of the Trinity, which we read about next, the Father. The Father. And this is the one that I think sometimes gets the worst rap of the three. Like, the people, okay, and generally in our culture, when you think about the Holy Ghost, you think, oh, I got the Holy Ghost. Like, I, went to, I went to a church meeting, and hallelujah, you know, and then I got, like, the whole, I went to this worship service, and the song was so good, and I got, like, goosebumps. I think it was the Holy Spirit, you know. Um, or, it's like, or it's like, oh, I got the Holy Ghost, now I'm, like, handling rattlesnakes or something weird, you know. There's so many weird church cultures when surrounding that idea. Um, but... What is this? So, but then, then when it comes to Jesus, oh, everybody loves Jesus. Everybody loves Jesus. You can ask anybody about who Jesus is, and they'll be like, yeah, Jesus, at the very least, they'll say, Jesus was cool, man. Like, he, was, he preached love, you know, we should just love, you know. Um, everybody gets that whole idea. Jesus gets a great rap because, like, yeah, he was just like a poor man who lived in the Middle East, and, like, people misunderstood him, and that's, like, why he, you know, uh, that's why he died, you know, and he just had some really good things to say. Everybody likes the philosophical idea of Jesus. Never mind the fact that he died because he was a religious extremist and nobody liked the things that he had to say. But um, never, and never, never mind his miraculous power. Never mind the fact that he rose from the dead and then claimed that I am God. And either you have to believe it or you don't. Never mind that. We like the G, but we like Jesus because he's pretty cool. 
What's interesting, though, is that many other, uh, many other religions will have different ideas about this kind of thing. But when it comes to God the Father, a lot of us are like, God the Father, he, is he the mean one? Yeah. He's the one who's like, not like smiting people, right? Who's like, die! In the Old Testament. Like a, he's like the big budget God. Like Jesus can be made, the Jesus movie can be made on a fairly low budget. Like the God the Father one has a lot of special effects because there's a lot of people dying, you know? So God, but that's how we see God the Father. He's like this big, angry old man who's like, ah, I hate people. I put up with them. Even I made them, but I just put up with them now, you know? But the crazy thing is that he is seen here as the omniscient creator. Paul says this. He says, there's one God and Father over, what word is there? A-L-L, that's all. Anybody remember those old laundry detergent commercials? The Father is seen as this omniscient creator, and he is. Genesis 1.1 proclaims that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He is absolutely all-powerful. And you need to know something about... about I, I, I just feel like somebody here needs to know this. That you need to understand that God is sovereign. That He is over all things. He is, he is the creator of all things. He knows all things. And He is powerful enough. He covers all things. There are some of us that have this idea of Jesus is my homeboy and the Holy Spirit makes me feel good, but I don't know if God's actually powerful enough to do something on my behalf. I need you guys to know that God created all things. He is powerful and He is mighty to save. At the same time, He is also the Father and He is the loving sustainer of all things. In Exodus 34... We read the first time that God ever revealed himself to somebody. Like he, The first time he ever explained or described himself to somebody. He describes himself to Moses. And he says, he, he, he's passing by Moses. He's like, y'all can't look at me because if you look at me, you're going to die. So I'm just going to put you in the cleft of the rock here. And I'm going to walk by. And as I walk by, I'm going to describe myself. And so Moses, I mean, he's in the cleft of the rock. And he's got to be just sweating. He's like, God is going to walk by God is going to walk by. The creator of the earth is going to walk by. In indescribable light, he is going to walk by me and he's going to speak to me. And then, I, I, you know, I imagine like the, you can imagine the earth shaking and there's like heat and like blinding light. Even as he's facing into the blackness of the corner, it's just like, shoom. And then there's a voice that comes out and it says, the Lord, the Lord, merciful. Why not the Lord, the Lord, powerful? Why not the Lord, the Lord, strong? Why not the Lord, the Lord, mighty in battle? No, it starts off with the Lord, the Lord, merciful. You know, what's interesting too is the word there is actually, the root for that word is the same word for the word womb in Hebrew. It's a distinctly feminine word. And that is the very first word that God uses to describe himself. God is neither male nor female. He possesses qualities of both. He reveals, chooses to reveal himself as father in scripture, and I think for, for special reason. But, in this context, the first thing he says about himself is that he is merciful. That he is like a womb. Like he is a protective covering. Like there is no safer place than in him. Think about that. We freak out when somebody's born prematurely because they are out of their safe space. God is a safe space. Powerful, mighty, creator, but also a loving sustainer. And that's why Paul can say he's the father of all. He is, he is like a loving parent. And that's something that we get wrong about God all the time. He is the loving sustainer of all things. 
And so then he says he's the God of all who is over all and through all and in all. And I love this the way he wraps up because he says three things about who God is. First of all, he says that God is transcendent. He is above all. And some of you guys need to know tonight that God is mighty, that He is above it all, and He has a bird's eye view where you don't. You might feel like you're stuck up against a wall. Yeah, I can't overcome this issue in my life. I can't get past this emotional barrier or whatever, but God is transcendent, and the Father sees all and knows all. And furthermore, the prophet Isaiah says that His ways are not your ways, and His thoughts are not your thoughts. He sees things that you could never see, and He understands because He's transcendent, He is over all. Secondly, he is active. We see this in the work of the Son. Because he says he is overall and through all. See, this is how we know that God cares for us. Because while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.8 Jesus himself was the physical manifestation of God. God the Father sends God the Son, empowered by God the Spirit, to accomplish God's mission in the earth. And what was his mission in the earth? To set you free from your sins. And the only way he could do that was through blood sacrifice. How was he going to accomplish blood sacrifice with a sacrifice that was imperfect? He couldn't. So he had to send a perfect sacrifice. And the only one that was left was his own son. Jesus came to the earth. He lived the life that you and I could not live. Died a death that we deserved. And he is active. And it's proven at the cross of Christ. Some of you think that God is not active in the world. But you need to understand that he is. Otherwise he wouldn't have sent anybody. Thirdly, God is, this is a physical theological word you can take home, imminent. Not like imminent with an I, imminent with an A right here, okay? Write that down. This will make you sound smart, okay? Imminent. What is the imminence of God? Imminent means that He's right here. Imminence means that God is present. And this is what we see in the work of the Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit means that God gets to dwell in you. You get this breath of new life the moment that you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and He forgives you of your sin. Suddenly there's a new breath inside of you and suddenly you recognize that the words of Matthew 28 were totally right. When Jesus told His disciples, I will never leave, behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Suddenly you realize it's true because I can feel God with me and it's the presence of God by His Holy Spirit. I don't know how I'm going to get through tomorrow. I don't know how I'm necessarily going to get through my degree. I don't. Come on, somebody. If some, if some of this is preaching to you, I don't know what I'm going to do tomorrow. I don't know how I'm going to get another dollar tomorrow. I can't ask my parents for more money. I don't know how things are going to work out with my boyfriend tomorrow. I don't know how things are going to work out with my girl tomorrow. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but I know that God is with me. Amen. That is the imminence of God present in the person and work of the Holy Spirit. What you believe determines how you live. So believe in the triune God today. Believe in Him. Don't believe in the, a lot of times we get these lies that are handed down to us. Believe what Scripture says about Him. There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, Jesus. One faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all, and He is here right now in this room. So here's the question. Let's just, let's just talk, talk about this for a minute. What falsehoods or lies, I guess, have you believed about God? Either the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit, or all three. So turn to somebody 
and uh, talk about it. Do it with your Bible open, though, if you can. Keep your Bible open to Ephesians 4 right there and any other places that you feel are relevant. Get with just one or two other people and discuss this question. What falsehoods have you believed about God? It could be something simple. It could be something really deep. It could be something that it just needed a course correction. But go ahead and talk to somebody about it. Go for it. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon from Regen. If you have any questions about Regen, feel free to shoot us an email at regeneratelcsc at gmail.com. Regen, changing the world for Jesus, one person at a time.